Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord be with all of you gathered here today. Uh, May the grace and peace of our Lord rest on the minds and hearts of all gathered in worship. I want to take a moment to welcome you into uh, part four of our series and invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. And as you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2, I want to also invite the rest of our church family worshiping in the Family Life Center at this time to turn as well to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 4 of that chapter. And today we continue our ongoing study in Genesis 1 through 11, a series called In the Beginning. And as you're finding your way there, and it doesn't take long to find your way, I know, to chapter 2 of of Genesis, but as you are finding your way there to the beginning of your Bible, let me encourage you, if you have not um, been a part of the first three sermons of this series, I want to encourage you to go online and watch them. It's not because there's anything spectacular about the delivery, let me just guarantee you that, but there is uh, embedded within each of those sermons of this series, some foundational information, some grounding for our ongoing study. It kind of frames our understanding of Genesis 1 through 11, and I want to encourage you to catch up if you have missed any. But for today, we begin our reading in chapter 2, verse 4b. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord, God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was no one to till the ground, but, but a stream would rise up from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Uh, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed out of the ground. The Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, let's move to verse 18 for today's purposes. Then the Lord God said it, I'm sorry, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. 
Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So, out of the ground, the earth, out of the ground, the Lord formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to every animal of the field, but for the man there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore the man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. The reading of the sacred word, it's reliable and it can be trusted. Let's pray together. Good and loving God, God of wonders beyond our galaxy, you have been steady a firm foundation. You have been the most consistent love any of us have ever known. And in this hour as we worship you, we, we yield before that love, recognizing that in the company of your love, we cannot leave the same as we were when we came. We enter into this hour in which we marvel at your presence, in which we gasp at your action, in this world, and we, we place ourselves vulnerably before you that we may be transformed by an encounter with you. Here we have opened our ears already, Lord, and opened our eyes, and we have, we have opened our hearts, that we have opened the scriptures before you, Lord, and we pray only that your spirit would open the soul so that everything that you would have us to hear we may hear it and receive it, that it may be like a seed that plants deeply within us for a life of fruit. Grow something in us today, Lord, we pray. In the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So we have been now, this is our fourth week together in this series, In the Beginning. And we've been saying along the way that these first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis... Well, they're a different Bible. That's how I've been talking about it. In these 11 chapters, there are images and there are symbols and there is um, poetry and there are persons in which those who read these passages are meant to not simply read them for information, but are meant to encounter them for transformation. See, these 11 chapters are up to something in us. They're not simply to convey information. They're not history. They're not, they're not science. It never purports to be a science book or a history book, but rather it attempts to do something that stokes and provokes faith in us as we encounter these mysteries that we read about. 
Now, thus far, and we're setting the table this morning um, because we have a lot of ground to cover today. I'm excited about the chapter that we're in today, chapter two. But to do so, I want us to take the, the plane up to about 30,000 feet so we can kind of look over the topography of all that we have covered thus far over chapters one and now entering chapter two because we've said some things about chapter one. In chapter one, we have said that there is a version of the creation story that we are about to see is very different and very similar to the version of the creation story in chapter two. There are two creation stories in our Bible. The first one is in chapter one. And what we've said for the last three weeks is there is something unique about chapter one. Have you noticed that it's very orderly, very uh, designed with rhythm and meter and, and, and rhyme? There's a sense in which uh, there, there is a kind of structure to chapter one that's meant to do something in us. We have already acknowledged that chapter one emerges, as we believe, out of late 6th century exile, where priests around that era began to tell the stories of faith that helped bring order out of chaos. During the 6th century, the people are in exile, and everything that has held their life together has now um, fallen apart, unraveled. And in the context of struggle and chaos and suffering, the rabbis tell stories, the theologians do their work in theology, the priests lead worship, and out of that context of suffering and chaos emerges a version of our beginnings in which God is hovering over chaos. And God begins to separate the waters and order comes out of chaos. And we said last week that there is a certain rhyme and rhythm to it all. Uh, in the first seven acts of creation, God says, let there be. And then there was, and it was good, day one, right? And God said, let there be something else. <laughs> and it was, and it was good, day two. And on and on through each of the series of creative, creative acts. But we said last week that that emerges in the context of kind of a worship structure in which exiles in worship are listening and hearing the songs being sung, hearing the chants being given, and in the midst of chaos, they hear the chant that there is a God still in control, that they hear the liturgy, that there is a God who knows how to bring order out of chaos. And we said that in the context of worship, it does something to them. In chapter 1, Walter Brueggemann points out that there is something very vertical about chapter one. In the first act of creation, or the first story of creation, everything is very vertical. I mean, God is the one doing all the acting, and God is the one doing all the speaking, and all the action takes place because God speaks and it's done. Very vertical, very divine. Now, in chapter two, where we are about to move, and God is still very much in control, and there is still very much the, the presence of divine action, but we are introduced to the human community in which God now seeks partnership with the humans. And God, for example, will create ground, but the people cultivate the ground. And God will make animals, but the man names the animals and so forth. So in chapter 2, while chapter 1 has a vertical kind of Axis, there is also a kind of horizontal shape to chapter two. Can you think about that with me for just a moment? Chapter one, the first story of creation, very divine, vertical, the divine action. 
Chapter 2, we're introduced to human participation, something very horizontal, the human nature. The divine action and the human experience. Can you imagine with me an intersection in which the divine nature and the human nature intersect? Do we know of any intersection like that where the divine and the human intersect? I can do that all day, you know. That in the cross of Jesus, we find the fullest expression of divine and human nature. And chapter 1 gives us a glimpse of God's action. Chapter 2, God's action, but with human participation. And you know what's clever? The, 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 the axis is held together. The linchpin that holds the cross beam together is at the end of the first story of creation, the beginning of chapter 2, where we hear about the creation of the Sabbath or creation of the seventh day. And by the time the people who received this first begin to hear it, they're already a worshiping community. They know what to do on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, they worship together. And here they are hearing it for the first time. Chapter 1, divine action. Chapter 2, human participation. And when do they hear about it? On the Sabbath. (laughs) Worship is the place where you and I gather to imagine the intersection between the life of God and our own life. So today we move into the very vertical plane. We move into chapter 2. And as we move into chapter 2, there are some words that I want us to use as kind of benchmarks to move us through this amazing story, a second story of creation. Are you ready for the words? Here they come. Dust, spot, rib, naked. Can you just repeat with me? Dust. Dust. Even in the FLC, I want to hear you loud and strong. Dust. Dust. Spot. Spot. Rib. Rib. Naked. Naked. Not naked. (laughs) Naked. Naked. Yeah. We'll get to that word in a minute. Naked. But first we start with dust. Chapter 2, verse 7 reads this way. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. This version of the creation of humankind is so very different than the first. In the first, God says, let us make humankind in our image. And God does it, and it's beautiful and wonderful. But this one finds God down on God's knees, up to God's elbows in the mud. There is formed out of the dust the human being. With with dirt beneath the the fingernails of God, there he is. It's much more intimate. You know, it's interesting. Some have said that this particular version of the creation story is even older than the first one, dating not to the 6th century, but to the 9th and 10th century when the, the rise of the Davidic and Solomonic Empire was at its height, when the royal family was going through corruption. We read about some of that corruption in the books of First and Second Samuel. And there were a few faithful, the Yahwists, we call that tradition, a few faithful who writing about the corruption at the very top tell the story of our beginning in such a way as to remind those who have become too powerful 
those who have become so sure of themselves that even God began by getting down into the dirt with us, began our origins by digging down into the dirt, getting fingernails, dirty hands, dirty. So there is a brand new version. In fact, there's a play on words in this text. Adam, in Hebrew, is Adam. We covered that last week. But in this story, Adam emerges out of the Adama. It's the same word, but an extension. The man is created out of the dirt, out of the dust. Can I just tell you that, beloved, as beautiful and smart and wise and strong as we ever may become, we are dust. We began as dust and we return as dust. This is the cry of Ash Wednesday, isn't it? In just a little more than two weeks, we will gather in here for a special worship service. We do it every year. It's one of the most moving services that we offer called Ash Wednesday, in which we bring our, our humanity and we're reminded of our own mortality and our brokenness and our sin, and we do something with it. We relinquish it before God and, and the pastors. We, we take a moment, the pastoral staff will take the ash that has been created from the burned palm branches of last year's Easter and place the mark of the cross upon the forehead of each worshiper and say, as we do, remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. And it's a poignant reminder that we are mortal, we are vulnerable, we are fragile. It's not a bad reminder for us to hear from time to time. In a world when we can convince ourselves that we are so invincible that nothing can take us down, it's not such a bad thing to remind ourselves that that's not how God made us. That God designed us to be vulnerable. That we are made of dust. And to dust we shall return. Now listen, we can decorate dust. We can do that well. We can. We can put makeup on and become pretty dust. We can run on the treadmill and, and, and become healthy dust. We can lift weights and become muscular dust, but we are dust. I mean, we can make good financial investments and become wealthy dust. We can go to school and join every club there is on campus and be on the starting lineup of every team and at the end of our high school career be voted most likely to return to dust. <laughs> But we are dust. We can go and get an education and have letters follow our names. And some of you know that tomorrow morning I will defend my doctoral dissertation and you could call me Dr. Dust. <laughs> but it is dust. Dust. And to dust we all shall return. And it may be that somebody's here and maybe that's what you need to be reminded of today. That the, the, don't, don't get too big for your britches because you're dust. But it may be that somebody's here, and that's not at all what you need to hear, but you know what the beauty of the text is? <laughs> that we're not just dust. Yes, we are dust, but God in God's love bends down, knees in the dirt, up to his elbows in mud, and forms us and breathes, the text says, nostril to nostril. There's a play on words there that gives the image of nostril to nostril, the af is the Hebrew word for a nostril, and breathes into the mortal the very life of God. And now all of a sudden, dust is not just dust. But it's dust that's filled with life and possibility 
And it may be, yeah, that some of us from time to time need to be reminded, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But some of us may not need a reminder at all because you have buried a loved one, or you've been given a diagnosis, or in the midst of your own brokenness, you are reminded every day, I know I'm dust. No one needs to remind me. Maybe you need to be reminded that while you are dust, you are more than dust. That God has filled you with God's own life. Dust. The second word that moves us through chapter two is not just dust, but spot. Will you repeat after me, spot? Spot. spot. In this next verse, chapter eight, we read what happens when God makes him immortal. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The Lord God then took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. God finds a place, a spot, to put the man. What's fascinating about this portion of the, the chapter is that it reverses the order of the first creation story. The first creation story is told this way. God creates all the stuff first. That is a brutal summary of the act of creation. But God creates all the stuff first. He separates wet things and dry things, light things from dark things, and puts green stuff in places, and... And once the garden is in place, then the last act of creation before creating the Sabbath, the last act of creation, almost as if it is the kind of crowning jewel of creation itself, is the formation of the human being. Let us make humans in our image, right? That's the first story. The second story reverses the order. God first makes him a man and then says, where am I going to put you? and creates a, a spot to place him. God creates a spot to place him. Now, we don't know where Eden is. I mean, people have tried to locate it. There are hints in the Bible about where these rivers are, but there, there's really no central um, fountainhead. There's no central starting point to any of these rivers that are mentioned uh, in this second chapter. So no one knows where it is. The best we can say is that it's in the east. That's it. And in the East, the Bible uses that nomenclature in the East to describe a kind of primordial place where everything's right. The word Eden literally means pleasure. That place way off where it's all together and it feels right. Everything's put together. Everything that should be together is together. It's all right and perfect and good. Eden, you know, in the East. There's an allusion to that idea in the book of Job. Job, which we believe may be the oldest book in the Bible. Job is introduced as the man who is righteous and blameless before God. And when it describes where he's from, he's from the east, where everything's right. Isn't that where we're all attempting to go? Aren't we all just trying to, to get to a place where just life is right, feels right, looks right, comes together right? I love what uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young said about it in their song, um, Woodstock. They said, we are stardust, we are golden, we are 10 billion year old carbon, and we got to get ourselves back to the garden. Isn't that the human plight we're attempting to get to some place of reconciliation, redemption, a place where it's just right, and in the origin of our species, we hear this story that God makes God a man and uh, 
puts him in a spot where it can be all right. One of the things I think I marvel about most in this chapter is something that we kind of overlook because it sounds so simple. God created a space to put you in his world. I mean, that, that sounds very simple, over-simplistic maybe even, but let's not forget what Psalm 24 says. This is not your world or mine, but the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it and all who abide in it. This is the Lord's planet. This is the Lord's space. And yet, in the midst of this thing, God creates a space, a spot to put you and maybe that doesn't sound like such a big deal because maybe, maybe you're not grateful for that yet because things have not come together. And maybe you're going through a thing and the circumstances of your life cause you to wonder if it was even a good idea that God found a spot to put you. I get it. I, I know. But do you realize that every day that the sun rises, we get another crack at this? Because God found a spot to put you in God's world. Not by accident, but on purpose. Did you notice how the rest of the verse continued? Listen to these words. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. Now that phrase, to till and to keep, in Hebrew, the word to till literally means to serve. The word to keep literally means to nurture. God created the human, the mortal, the man, to serve and nurture the spot where he had placed him. We were created not to be slaves, but we were created as partners. This will blow the mind if you think and sit with it long enough that God creates a world and then invites humankind to be partners in the co-creation of it. I'll make the ground, you till it, and make stuff grow out of it. I'll make the animals, I'll bring them to you, and you name them and care for them and be, uh, have dominion over them. Not domination over the earth and all that, but dominion, responsibility, care for. In other words, God puts you in a spot and gives you the privilege of participating in God's work. Have you stopped long enough to think about your spot? Because wherever it is that God has placed you in God's great garden, God's expectation for you is the same as it is for me, as the same as it was for our first parents, and it is this, nurture and serve wherever you have been placed. Because think about it, if you don't nurture and serve in the unique, distinct place where you have been put, in your spot, there's no one else who will be able to pull that job off. Because your experience with God is unique to you. I mean, we share an experience with God, but God is so infinite in God's nature that God is beyond all of our reckoning. But in your unique experience, if you don't tell your story, if you don't somehow find a way to give voice to your encounter with God, that's a part of God's own character that the rest of us will never know. So till and keep, serve and nurture wherever it is and whomever it is, where God has placed you in this spot. So we are made of dust, but not just dust. We've been put in a spot, but not by accident, on purpose. And the next, maybe 
one of the most fun words of all, rib. Say rib. 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 This may be one of the most uh, used and abused <laughs> sections of this second chapter. I mean, it's the stuff that all kinds of great jokes are made of, right? The creation of the woman. I even thought in my preparation, hey, maybe I'll make a joke of where, where Adam is the hero and then make a, an equal joke where Eve is the hero. We'll just all laugh and decided not to do either. <laughs> because I want you to hear exactly what I think this text really is all about. Stripping past the humor and stripping past the centuries of sometimes abuse of this text. So let's read the text as it comes before us. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. Do you know that of all the things that happen in chapter 1 and chapter 2, in the first story and the second story of creation, everything is good. Good, 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 good. Even at the conclusion of the first story, things are now very good. But there is one thing in all of creation that is deemed not good. And that's being alone. God saw that the man was alone. And it was not good. This story is not just about a man finding a wife. And the nature of marriage includes that. But it's about the human community. It's about God who creates as a trinity. God is a trinity, which means God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, out of this community of mutual sharing and concern and love and service to one another within the Godhead, creates a community in which this human community is intended to behave the same way, mutual love and company and companionship and service. Sometimes we come to this particular text and we abuse it with with all kinds of assumptions it's been used to subjugate women for a very long time and in fact one of the assumptions the dangerous assumptions is well maybe because she was created second therefore she's subordinate to the man well I'll remind you beloved that any talk of subordination or subjugation or hierarchy does not appear in the Bible until after chapter 3, after the fall, as a result of the decisions of humans, not God. God's design is mutual value and extraordinary equality. And sometimes we say to ourselves that, you know, because of the, a simple reading of the text, that this means man is first, women, the woman is second, but maybe a, a word study would help us in that way. In the text it says, God saw that the man was alone and was not good, so he would create a helper. The word in Hebrew for helper is a word etzer. Etzer is a word that means helper, but it literally means, in Hebrew, one who comes to the rescue of. Yeah, not kidding. Do you know that in the Hebrew Bible, the word etzer is used 21 times throughout the whole of the Hebrew Bible, but do you know that 15 out of the 21 times that etzer, helper, rescuer, is used, 15 out of the 20 times it's used, it refers to God. But the first time that it's used is to describe the activity of the woman who shares a title with God as one who comes to the rescue. Another assumption, a flaw in our history and how we've interpreted this text is some have said, well, because she was taken from the side of Adam, 
that subjugates her. It makes her somehow secondary. But the reality is the image that we are meant to, to think about is that of a potter and, a, and, and, and the potter's clay. How God the potter will take a lump of clay, Adam, <laughs> and place the lump of clay on the table. And if a potter takes a lump of clay and places it on the table and then takes a piece of that lump of clay, it's the same clay. It's not less clay. It's not secondary clay. It's not derived clay. Takes the clay, plop, and takes a portion of it, same clay. Another flaw in our theology in the past, an assumption, a fatal assumption that has contributed to a flawed perception of the equality among the genders is this. Some have said, well, because Adam is the one who gives her a name, that she is subordinate to Adam. I think Phyllis Tribble really helps me out here. She observes that in the Bible, the person who names another is very insightful. For example, later in the book of Genesis, when Hagar, the handmaiden who was thrown away by Abraham, <laughs> Hagar is given the opportunity to give a name to God. The first opportunity in that portion of the Hebrew Bible. And the fact that she names God does not mean that God is somehow subordinate to her. But rather, when someone gives a name in the Bible, then the namer is simply making a declaration about what he or she has observed about the nature of the one being named. And Adam sees in his isolation that this one is Etzer. This one is the helper, and he names her accordingly. And I just want to take a moment before we stop talking ribs here to talk directly to our students who are some who are in this room and many who are in the FLC right now. So I want you to look right up at the screen, students. And I want to talk to our young women for just a moment. You live in a world right now that still attempts to subjugate you. You live in a world now where all the images, all the talk, all the rhetoric, sometimes blatantly and sometimes just enough under the surface to not really sound like it counts, is an attempt to keep you in a category just beneath equal. So to my young women, our students, JCBC girls, I want you to hear this. That is not what God intended. You live in a world that will sexualize you, and from the time that you are a child, you will be convinced that your highest value, your highest worth, is somehow in the way your body looks. That is a lie. God intended for your existence to find its beauty in the fact that you host the image of God in you. Amen? Amen. Yeah. And to my brothers, to my young men who are JCBC students, I want you to dial in right now too. That same image abides in you and you know this. But you also know something else. You hear the same words and are the recipients of the same sometimes jokes that I and your dads often hear about women. And sometimes they're blatant and sometimes they're just enough under the radar to not really count, not really sound like they're too bad. But I'm here to tell you, my beloved brothers, that if you are a person of faith, 
It is time for us to call that lie what it is. It's time for us to stop whenever we hear or receive images or words or jokes that in any way subjugate your sisters to a place of lesser value. And when we hear those kinds of words, when we hear that kind of talk, it is weakness masquerading as strength. So I'm calling on you to rise up to who you really are and protect the dignity, the reputation, and the divine image of your sisters whom you love and for whom Christ has died. Amen? Amen. All right, go ahead. One more. So that's rib. So yes, we are made of dust, but it's not just dust. We are put in a spot, but it's not by accident. Yes, we share a rib of radical equality with one another because the image of God is in all of us. But that leads us to the last word. Naked. Naked. Let's read the text as it comes to us. Then the man said, this At last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man man, this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Can I just give you a spoiler alert here? This isn't just about nudity. It's not just about having no clothes. It's not about fig leaves or no fig leaves. When they, when we, in our original design, walked naked and unashamed, it meant that we were spiritually naked before one another too. Not just we didn't have clothes and it wasn't a big deal, no problem. It Rather, when you were born, beloved, You were never closer to your truest identity than when you were born. Because when you're born, you have no pretension. You're not trying to project or pretend anything. You've not learned that you have to cover up who you really are and and what your real personality is or what you think is funny or what what gives you passion. You don't have to cover up any of that because you're just who you are. But we learn very quickly that we have to clothe ourselves in order to somehow receive the kind of love and affirmation that we assume we will receive if we look a certain way and talk a certain way and behave a certain way. To be naked and unashamed means that we abide with God every day in such a way that we say through prayer, God, I recognize that I will cover myself up in a number of ways today and I will pretend and I will project and I will exude some kind of image that I think is acceptable to the world around me But in this time of prayer, I ask you to strip that away so that I can be bare and vulnerable before you and you may see my soul. And the more we are comfortable being bare before God in the soul, the more trusting we can become of one another. My encouragement today to you is this. Find a moment every day in which you allow Christ to remove whatever layers of of hiding you have donned for that day. Allow him to strip you clean down to the soul so that you can be who you were intended to be, not only in the presence of God, but in the presence of this garden in which he has placed you to be. To be. 
Let's pray together. God, we stop for just a moment to acknowledge that you, you've intended so much more than, than what we have stewarded. We have been given the gift and the responsibility of living in this community, um, to be more than dust, to find a spot in which we serve and nurture, to share in mutual care and equality, to, to be bare with one another in the soul, and to know one another and trust one another. But we recognize that we have We've abdicated our responsibilities as co-creators with you in a world that beautiful. So in this time of commitment, in this time of worship, we simply ask that you would enable us to enable you to strip us clean down to who we were really meant to be in you, that we may leave this place and, and demonstrate to the world a version of our existence that you had in mind from the very beginning. We pray in Christ's name.